Good morning. This is, uh, what we're looking at today is Paul's farewell speech to Ephesus. And I want you to just imagine for a moment that you uh, were having to face uh, some people that you had loved and cared for and been with for years and were now never going to see again. This would be your last opportunity to ever talk to them. You knew this was going to be your last opportunity. What would you say? You know, when we on, are on the staff uh, team, when we get together, we just had a retreat for a couple days uh, out, in, out in Schulenburg, and, you know, we spent uh, our ta- a lot of time hanging out together, talking, and some of the time was talking about discipleship and plans for the church, and, you know, a lot of the other time was spent talking about, uh, talking trash about uh, our, our ping pong skills or uh, basketball abilities or um, reminding all the Houstonians of who's won three World's championships in the NBA in the last four years. So we'd talk about that and have fun with each other. But if this had been our last time to ever see one another, I think the conversation would have been a lot more focused. We probably wouldn't have spent a lot of time talking about ping pong or basketball. In fact, we probably wouldn't have spent a lot of time talking about uh, things like the church budget and stuff like that. We would have gotten even more serious, more deep into each other's lives, more deep into who God is. Because if this were the last time that we were to see each other, we'd want to make sure that we were talking about the thing that is more important than anything else. We had an example of someone who had an opportunity to say farewell uh, to, to us uh, about a month ago. Uh, Senator John McCain, who about a little over a year ago was diagnosed with brain cancer. Uh, he went through treatment for uh, about a year, but then uh, back in August decided it was time to end the treatment. And shortly after that, he, he passed away. And he sent a letter to or he published an open letter to the American people. I'm not going to read it. You could look at it online. But in it, uh, this this letter was remarkable in that it captured really uh, the life of of, of John McCain and what he wanted to, what he always wanted to be, what he was at his best moments for this country. He was uh, a man who dedicated his entire life to public service, first as 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 an Air Force pilot or a Navy pilot in uh, the Vietnam War where he was shot down and captured by the Vietnamese. Uh, held uh, prisoner and tortured for several years, refusing release uh, until uh, the rest of his, t- his team could go with him. He then dedicated himself to service in government. And uh, John McCain was known as someone who worked very hard to try to get uh, Republicans and Democrats to work together on many issues. And it pained him deeply to see the dark and deep divide that has come over this country uh, across uh, the political spectrum, how uh, Republicans and Democrats now see each other as greater threats and bigger enemies than uh, ISIS or Al-Qaeda. And so he made a call, a passionate plea uh, for us as a country, reminding us that we are better than this, that this is not who we are and that we have it within us to bridge that divide. And this was the thing that was most on his heart. Um, things like 
vote for a Supreme Court justice or a tax law or things of that nature, those got put to the side. He focused on the one thing that meant more to him than anything else. And he brought that to the American people. Now, I'm going to get back to McCain's speech because there is uh, something in it that I, I, I'm not going to praise, but I'll get to that much later. But as an example of what a farewell speech should be, his letter, I think, is a model. And it, I think it can help us to, to grasp some of what the Apostle Paul is now going to say in his farewell to a church that he had labored at for three years. Remember, Pastor Edward uh, taking us through uh, Acts 18 and 19 uh, showed that there was a switch in how Paul uh, connected with his churches. Up to this point, up to here, he'd usually been at a church for a couple of weeks, and then they'd you know, try to kill him, uh, the pe- not the church, but people uh, who opposed uh, the, the spread of the gospel of God would try to kill Paul, and Paul would uh, have to evacuate to the next city, to the next city, to the next city. And so the church at, at Philippi or at Thessalonica, um, we, read, we read Paul's letters to them, but you have to remember, he only spent a couple weeks at those churches. And then he had to move on. But at Corinth, in chapter 18, we see a, a shift. And God now has Paul in one place. He's in Corinth for, I think, a year and a half. And we see that he is in Ephesus for three years. He has spent three years laboring over that church, building up leaders. And now as he's on his way to Jerusalem and he's been warned uh, through the Holy Spirit that what awaits him is imprisonment and possible death, And he's certain that this is his last time. And so as he passes along, he needs to make it to Jerusalem by Pentecost. So he stops at a place called Miletus, which is near the beach. And he summons the Ephesian elders. He knows if he goes inland to Ephesus, you know, they're going to have a place for him to stay. He's probably going to have to be there for a couple weeks and he's never going to be able to go. So he has them come to him and they meet. And here he gives his final final message to them. What's he going to say? What is the single most important thing for the Apostle Paul that he wants these men whom he has loved to know, to leave with? And I want to say that Paul, in this letter, or in this farewell speech, shares two fundamental convictions. There are two things he wants to leave this church with, two things he wants them to know and to take deeply into their heart. The first conviction that Paul has is that the inheritance that God promises to all believers that we will receive in its fullness when Jesus returns is more precious than anything we can obtain in this life from this world. That the inheritance that God has for his people, the promises of God, are more precious than all the things that the world promises to us. Okay? This, this, his farewell speech hinges on one line, one verse. If you look, uh, if you go through here, at, at verse 32, Paul says, And I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, 
which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And in that sentence there are these two, two core values for Paul. The precious nature of this inheritance and the power of the word, of the gospel, of God's grace to bring us into that inheritance. The greatness of the inheritance and the greatness of God's word. These are the two things he wants these elders to take deep into their heart as they go back to their church to shepherd the flock of God. Okay, so what is it? What is this inheritance? Well, the inheritance that Paul is talking about is eternal life. It is what Paul wants. And not just we live forever, not just physical eternal life, but it is eternal life in the presence of God and God's people. It is life with God himself. Paul in Ephesians I'm sorry, in Philippians, in the letter to the church at Philippi, in the letter of Philippians, uh, he's, on, he's also in Rome. He writes it about the same time he writes this letter to Ephesus. He's on trial for his life. He doesn't know how it's going to turn out. But he's confident of one thing. He says that whether in death or in life, Jesus Christ will be glorified in his body. And then he takes a minute to ruminate, which would be better, to be, exa- to be acquitted, to be released, to go free, or to die. And he says something very interesting. He says in chapter one of Philippians, to die is actually much better. It's preferable to me that I actually die here in Rome because to leave the body is to go and to be with Christ. And for Paul, being with Christ is better than life itself. In the Psalms it says, the steadfast love of God is better than life. And Paul knows that what awaits him is to actually be in the presence of Jesus himself. Yes, we know that in, in in the age to come, when Jesus returns, we have a new heavens and a new earth, there will be no more death and dying There'll be no more injustice, no more sickness. All of the things that make life there, there will be no more sin. As we sang earlier, oh, that day when freed from sinning. That day is coming. There will be no sin in our hearts. There'll be no sin on this planet. It will be wonderful. It will be glorious. There'll be food there, more delicious than anything we could have ever tasted in this life. Colors will be more vivid. There will be artwork that we will do that, makes the, that puts the Mona Lisa to shame. It will turn her smile to a frown. It will be so amazing. Okay. But all of that is secondary. What is so amazing about the inheritance that we will have is that Jesus will be there. We will see his face and the one whom our soul and hearts adores will finally be with us. And that, to Paul, is better than life itself. It is better than fame. It is better than money. It is better than power. It is better than sex. It is better than entertainment. It is better than having the most glorious ministry that you can imagine. For Paul, to be with Christ is everything. 
And this is what he wants the elders at Ephesus to know. Live with eternity in mind. Oh, if we could take that into our hearts, how it would transform our lives. How it would transform the way we parent, the way we work, the way we study, the way we treat our parents, the way we approach dating and marriage, the way we handle our finances. If we knew, if we took this deep into our hearts, that our best life is not now. Our best life will come when we are face to face with Jesus. Everything would be changed. The things we were afraid of would seem trivial. The insults and the things that offend us would roll off our back. The suffering that comes with sharing the gospel, the fear in that, would shrink if we just knew what awaits us, if we knew the weight of glory beyond all comparison that our momentary afflictions are preparing for us. Paul wants the elders at Ephesus to know. He wants the Ephesian church to know. He wants me to know. He wants you to know that our inheritance is worth losing everything for. The second thing we see in verse 32 is that he commends us to God and to the word of his grace. The word of God's grace is completely capable of accomplishing the goal, of getting us to the inheritance, of building us up, of sanctifying us, of preserving us, of, as we sang earlier, it's by his power that he will keep us. We will be kept. And the way he will keep us is the way we were converted. It is through his word. And that's why Paul emphasizes it so much in this speech. He talks about how day and night he went door to door and in public teaching about the gospel of God. How he did not shrink back from declaring anything that was profitable. He did not shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God. Everything that the Bible says or that can be uh, inferred by right and necessary consequence, Paul taught to the church at Ephesus. He wanted them to know the words of God. He wanted them to understand how it works together, the scope and its individual parts. He wanted them to understand the theology of the Bible. He wanted them to understand practically how this works in their life on a day-to-day basis. He wanted them to take this in because it is this word that will bring us into heaven. We see this throughout the New Testament. In James chapter 1, verse 21, he says, it is the implanted word, this word that is implanted in us that will save our soul. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 through 25, we're told to long for the true spiritual milk that by it we might grow up into salvation. For the word of the Lord For the the, the flower fades and the grass withers, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And it is this word that was preached to us. It is this word that will save us. 
Paul writing to Timothy shortly after uh, the letter to Ephesus when he realizes things are not going to go well for him in Rome and that the end is probably near. He says, all scripture, or he says, starting from chapter 3, verse 15, how Timothy, from childhood, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be equipped in every good work. The word of God is the power. It is what? By taking in the word, we will receive the inheritance. It will build us up. The word of God will uh, convict us of our sin. It will remind us of God's promises and of his great love for us. It will encourage us to have hope and not lose heart in the midst of suffering. It will remind us of who we are, who by grace through faith, we are now adopted children, sons and daughters just as loved by the Father as Jesus Christ is. This is the power of the word of God. And Paul commends the Ephesian elders to this word. He commends us to it. For it is able to build us up into salvation. These two convictions, the greatness of the inheritance, the power of God's word, Paul sees as so central because they perform two transformation, two works of transformation on the heart of the believer. When we grasp the greatness of our inheritance and we imbibe the word, we take it in regularly, two things happen. The first is it motivates us to endure fearlessly. Suffering. Look at the example Paul gives here in chapter 20. You yourselves know from verse 18 how I lived among you, serving the Lord with humility and all with the trials in verse 19 that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Verse 22, he talks about, Behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And he does not shrink back from the suffering that the word of God might bring because he knows the great power of this word and the great inheritance that is there for the saints. When we know these two things, we are able to endure suffering and we do not shrink back. There are things that Paul could shrink back from. He could shrink back from the hard and difficult teachings of Jesus. He could shrink back from the things that are going to get both Jews and Gentiles, angry at him. He could shrink back from talking about the things that get people to throw rocks at him, that get people to try to throw him in prison. He does not. Because what he knows and who he knows is so precious and so valuable that he is willing to die for it. 
So when you know, when, when you know the power of the word of God, and you know the greatness of our inheritance, we are motivated to suffer, we are transformed into people who suffer. We are also transformed into people who love to give more than to receive. We look at Paul's own life in verses 31 through 34. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. 33, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. What happens when we know the power of the word of God, we know the greatness of our future inheritance, is that whatever we can get now loses its grip on us and we become outward-oriented people. What we're trying to do here at church, trying to get ourselves to become through the word and through the promises. That's why we send the youth out on these short-term mission trips to go you know, build houses or share the gospel in the streets. We want them to know. We want you to know of the great blessing that comes when we give rather than receive. We look at our Lord Jesus, who though he was rich, became poor, that we might be made rich. This is what happens to us as the word does its work on our heart, as we keep our eyes aimed at the inheritance. We no longer become tight-fisted with our money. We become generous We become generous in helping those in need. We become generous in putting our money into kingdom values, into the church, into supporting foreign missionaries and other parachurch organizations, into ministries that are designed to help the poor and the needy. Generosity flows from knowing the greatness of the inheritance set before us and the power of the word of God to transform us. Now the question is how? How does this happen? How does the hope of our inheritance in heaven and our confidence in God's word lead to a radical, outward, willing-to-suffer focus? I've mentioned a couple. I'll just... Go back over them. Number one, it frees us from the ultimate consequences of suffering. Death has no grip on us. If you know that to die is gain, well, I mean, dying just doesn't phase you anymore. You know, there was a, a, an ancient Greek father, I think his name was uh, John Chrysostom, who uh, got the emperor... Uh, angry at him for some reason, and uh, he was threatened with all sorts of punishments. Uh, and every punishment he had an answer for. Uh, if you, I will threaten you with death. Well, if I die, I'm, one, I'm with Jesus. I will exile you. Wherever I go, Christ is with me. I will take all of your possessions. Well, I, you know, my, my inheritance is with Jesus in heaven. There's no threat that held this man that could cause him to shrink back from being who God had called him to be. If, you're, if death brings us to Jesus, 
death doesn't seem so scary anymore. It opens our eyes to the worth of Jesus. When we understand God's grace, when we understand what he has done for us in sending his son Jesus to die on the cross, when we see the depth of God's love and the lavish grace that he has shown on us, God appears beautiful to us. We love him and we imitate the one we love. We always imitate the one we love. We become imitators of Christ. We spent the whole year last year going through 1 Corinthians where we saw the Holy Spirit calls us to be and makes us into imitators of the risen Jesus. The word of God opens our eyes to the beauty and worth of Jesus. And we not, we not only want what he can give us, we want to be like him because he is so great and so beautiful. Third, the word of God and the greatness of our inheritance enlarges our hearts and gives us a desire for God's greater glory. We want the honor and the fame of the one who loves us to be spread abroad and treasured by every heart. It mourns us wherever we see Christ not honored, whether it's in our own sin or in the 7,000 people groups that have no access to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We want God to be worshipped and praised because he is worth it and because we know that this is where true joy is to be found for us and for others. And so what happens is the word of God transforms us into becoming people like Paul. It transformed Paul. It transformed the church at Ephesus. It is transforming us. I see stories of it. I hear stories of it all the time. God is doing a work among us because we are gradually realizing the worth of our great inheritance in Jesus and the power of his word. Application. I have three points. I want to, to go through, and this is where we're going to get to the story of Eutychus in a minute. Okay. Point number one, hard preaching, as one pastor put it, produces soft people. Paul did not shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God. If it was profitable, he said it regardless of the cost. Paul did not hold back from teaching difficult things. He taught about judgment. He taught about predestination. He taught about sin. He taught about hell. Things that are not always popular. Things that do not get people super excited most of the time. Because he knew that these would be profitable. He warned people. He admonished people. He called them on their sin. And the result from his hard preaching was a tender, soft, warm-hearted people. Look at how they respond to Paul. I mean, Paul has just gone up there. He said some difficult things. He's looked them in the eye and said, hey, from among your own selves are going to come false teachers who lead people astray. And their response? They weep. They hug and kiss him. Deeply saddened that they're never going to see him again. 
For three years, Paul taught them the difficult and hard things of God. And the result was a tender, warm-hearted, loving, broken people. For this reason, at this church, we will not shrink back from teaching the hard things of God. We will, from the pulpit, or in small groups, or in pathways, or D groups, or whatever classes we're doing, we will not hold back. We will not hold back things because we think that they might be unpopular. We will not hold back things because we think they might be difficult to understand. We talk about things that are hard to understand. You remind me of that, that they're hard to understand. We do this because they're profitable for you. And so, we will not shy away from the realities of heaven and hell. We will not shy away from the need to believe in Jesus to be saved. We will not shy away from teaching uh, things that our culture finds very offensive about sexuality and gender. In our premarital classes, we will talk to you very directly about the dangers and sinfulness of premarital sex and cohabitation and pornography and call you to lives of holiness and purity. Not because we want to control you, but because we understand hard teaching produces soft people. We will call you to be generous with your finances, not because we need the money, but because we know that your faithfulness in your finances is going to produce a fruit of righteousness in your own lives. We'll make hard calls for people to go to the mission field, to the hardest places. Again, because we know that these calls produce warm, tender-hearted, loving people. Hard preaching produces soft people. Second point of application There's a call for watchfulness, a warning to spiritual slumber and a neglect of taking in the word of God and pursuing the inheritance. The warning comes in the person of Eutychus. Most commentators don't quite know what to do with Eutychus. Uh, The story here in verses 7 through uh, 16, I've seen some people write it's just a comic touch on Luke's part. A comic touch, a guy fell uh, fell to his death from the third story. It's not that funny. Uh, I've heard people say it's just trying to show you the great power of Paul and his miracles. He's demonstrated that in other places. We know Paul works great miracles. Rather, God works miracles through Paul. No, Eutychus and what happens with him is, in, is, is juxtaposed with this speech to Ephesus because there is a warning and a promise in the story of Eutychus. Okay. What is this warning? Well, if you look uh, through uh, Luke and Acts together, you'll see that sleeping and nighttime are prominent themes. We see that Jesus, uh, at his, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, Uh, chastises Peter, James, and John. Why? Because they were sleeping. They could not take watch. When Jesus was transfigured on the mountain and they saw his glory, uh, they became fully awake and saw his glory. When Peter's put in prison, what does the church do? They stay awake all night and pray for him. And Peter is then released uh, by an angel. Paul and Silas, 
when they're in the jail in Philippi. They're singing hymns at midnight. I don't think that is a, a, a mistake. It's at midnight. They are singing hymns to God. They're keeping watch. And God acts with an earthquake to, to open the prison doors and bring the Philippian jailer to, to heaven, to, to, to salvation. Keeping watch becomes prominent in Luke's thought. So Paul right here in his speech to the Ephesian elders says, keep watch. Paul himself day and night was preaching and sharing the gospel with people. There is a constant vigilance that Paul is calling people to, that Luke is calling people to, that God is calling us to, and that Eutychus is not following here. We see when they meet in this room in Troas, it's a Sunday service. They're going to break bread, which is probably a reference to an early form of communion. Eutychus is there. It's well lit. Okay, they got a lot of lamps there, we're told. Luke wants us to know they have a lot of lamps. Okay, and he's up there, and he's sitting on the windowsill, and he falls into a deep sleep. Paul is going on and on. And you, you might think that, well, Paul, this is what happens when you have a boring sermon or you talk too much, but that's not, that's not the point here. The point is that Eutychus fell asleep and he's warning the Ephesian elders, don't do that. I believe what happened with Eutychus is on Paul's mind as he's giving this speech. Keep watch. Remember, I was with you day and night. Eutychus' death in the midst of Paul's teaching is a contrast with Paul's claim that he is innocent of the blood of the Ephesian elders because of his teaching. It's an indictment on Eutychus and not Paul. He, he dies because he was not awake, not paying heed to the teaching of God's word. This is a danger that is particularly strong for youth, but I don't think it's only to him. I think all of us can stand in Eutychus's place. All of us find ourselves daydreaming during sermons, finding other things to keep us busy, to occupy ourselves, okay? Whether it's uh, looking at Facebook online or playing Fortnite or uh, reading uh, meaningless blogs or, I mean, I know you guys like to share your political opinions on Facebook because I see them all the time. We're doing things like that, okay? There's nothing wrong with any of those, Okay? I, I might actually try to play Fortnite just to see why it's, what the, those are not sins, okay? Or maybe it is. Maybe I'll play the game and condemn it the next week from the pulpit. But I, my point is, we all find things to keep us from taking in the word of God. Yeah. Some of you, I know some of you have promised yourself, I'm gonna go to Pathways next Sunday. You've been promising yourself that for a couple of years and every Sunday morning, can't get up in time. We are asleep. Many of us are asleep. We've stopped paying heed to what God is saying to us in his word. And you are in great danger. Some of you, like Eutychus, haven't just fallen asleep. You've already fallen to the ground. There's a form of death, spiritual death, that has come into your life. You are so closed off and so uninterested in what God has to say to you. I hear the excuses. I'm not much of a reader. I'm very busy. I've got kids 
or a busy work schedule or you know, college applications or whatever it is. We don't make time. When I read the Bible, I don't understand. My call to you, I, I, I don't have an encouraging word here for you. I have an admonishment and a warning. You need to wake up. You need to wake up. There's only one way God has chosen to get us to the inheritance, and that is the word of his grace. We need to work together to make sure that none of us, that none of us falls short, that none of us is overtaken by an evil heart of unbelief. Eutychus serves as a warning to us, but it also serves as a promise. And that promise is this. We are not left to our own devices. We don't have to wake ourselves up. You know, John McCain, in his speech, I said he'd get back to that. I think his hope that we could come together was a good hope, but he based it in something that cannot ultimately work. He said, Americans, look to yourselves. You have it within you to come together. No, we don't have it within us. Just as we don't have it within us to wake ourselves up or raise, raise ourselves up from the dead like Eutychus. Eutychus needed a resurrection. And the good news is that the God who spoke through Paul that brought Eutychus to death is the same God who worked through Paul to bring Eutychus to life. God is not saying, hey, wake up, wake up, wake up. No, he gives you an alarm clock. He wakes us up. If we'll cry out to him, say, God, bring me out of slumber. Help me keep watch. Help me, God, put my hope in your inheritance and help me learn to love your word. He will not Ignore that plea. Our God is faithful. He will answer. He will come. And like Paul, he will put his arms around you and he will lift you up and he will find that there's still life there. And if you're in here today and you're listening to these words, there's still life. Eutychus' fall does not have to be the final word. So let us together pursue God, pursue his inheritance, pursue his word, and trust that by the power of his spirit, his grace is strong enough to keep us awake, to build us up, and to bring us to where he has called us, to where we will see him and know him. Let's pray. Father God, We thank you that you've given us hard preaching because you want to make us into soft people. And so I pray that none of us would shrink back from your word, from pursuing your word, from sharing and teaching and proclaiming your word, knowing that it is able, that through it you are able to build us up and bring us to the inheritance that you promised. I pray that that inheritance would be more precious to us than life itself. And that through your word, you would create a people here at WHCC 
who do not count our lives of as any value, if only we would finish our course and the ministry to which we are called, that we might see you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.